welcome back to another episode of Her Tech Talk, everyone. And my name is Anna. Hi, my name is Vanessa. And I'm Raina. Hi, everyone. And we have as our guest, Holly Schroeder here speaking with us today. Um, thank you for joining us for our live event, you know, celebrating humanity and stories about ordinary people changing the world for the better one community at a time. So we know Holly's really into accessibility and she's written some stuff. So we're going to ask her a little bit more about what she does and share that with all of us. We're excited to continue our episode series in which we connect with people who assist us in discovering new topics, professions and industries. We truly believe that the beauty of connection with the creatives, scientists, entrepreneurs, social activists, and others who inhabit them as the spirit of our Herta Castle community, and we're glad that you're here with us today. Yeah, we decided to, to dedicate today's episode to the important conversation about accessibility and inclusivity. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited and so um so just honored to be asked to speak and especially Anna is a former student and so that's just and I have other former students who are here and that makes my heart happy and um to see you know friendly faces and uh my favorite French girl is here so that's always nice and um it's just really nice to be here my pronouns are she her and uh, what I know you have some questions for me. Um, I guess just quickly, I am a dedicated user experience researcher and I work for a large fintech enterprise, so financial technology, or I work for a financial services firm in technology, and I am a dedicated researcher and I also teach. UX research and design um, and have through a nonprofit uh, as well as recently doing some private tutoring as well. So, and I also write and I don't know, I like to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, it seems like you're really involved in a lot of different things. You have like a large scope of where you work. Um, I mean, you kind of give us a, a really nice detail of your background. I think maybe we should just go straight in into some of the questions we prepared for you. Yeah, sure. Oh, and I forgot to give a shout out. I am the co-president of the St. Louis Experience Design Group. My co-leader co and Elena Jones, who's here tonight, she is our membership coordinator. She's new to our team. Thank God for Elena, who's gonna help us wrangle membership because Al and I are only two humans and can only do so much and we really needed the help. So I'm very grateful for that. And you do not have to live in St. Louis to come to our events and we absolutely welcome you anytime. Yeah, Yay. I oh, we totally, I mean, I hopped right over to Portland to come hang out with you guys, Samantha. So the invitation works both ways. Yeah, and we'd love to see see you there. I know you're based out of Chicago, but we're only a few hours away. So, yeah, I mean, we'll definitely consider um, attending, especially now during these times, like we all go virtual. And so, with that, we kind of wanted to start from the very beginning and ask you 
how and where did you first start your professional journey and just like give us a little bit of insight and how it all started <laughs> so i have i the my first words were questions i've always been very curious and before we had the internet i was the kid that went to the library and instead of a rabbit hole i would clear the stacks on a topic i'd be like this topic, I will take all of these to the table. Um, and so I've just always been a really curious person and maybe to the point of frustration of some of my teachers, perhaps sometimes they let me know they were done asking, answering questions for the day. But, uh, and so when I started working, I really was interested in how things work, why people do the things they do, what choices, what inspires the choices that they make. And every job that I've had since I, you know, started becoming intentional about having a career. I worked as, I've worked a lot of service jobs. I worked in the service industry as a waitress for a long time. Um, I was moved out the first time when I was 16. I got my GED uh, and started community college soon after. But, you know, technically I'm a high school dropout. And it just, you know, things were complicated for me family-wise. And that was the best choice for me. I tried a bunch of different schools and I could actually finish uh, an associate's faster than I could finish high school because I was so credit deficient <laughs> that my principal advised me to get my GED and go to community college, um, which is probably not typical advice, but was really great advice for me. And so I've always been a non-traditional student. I've always been a night school student. I did not do the four-year college thing. Um, I got married and had a kid very young. My daughter always knows how old I am because I'm exactly 20 years older than her. So it's easy math. Um, and married and was divorced by the time I was 23. And that's when I was like, okay, I have to be the breadwinner for us and needed to start looking for something that was more sustainable for a single mom than being a server. Like the money's good sometimes, but it's not predictable and the hours aren't great. So I ended up temping at a place that hired me that was a promotional marketing company. And I literally had no idea what promotional marketing was, like not a clue. And if you don't know either, that's totally okay. Um, Cause you gotta learn sometimes, but when you get a pen and it has some company's name on it, that's promotional marketing. But so they plot me in a chair and um, I just kind of dug in and started really getting to understand that world and doing a lot of research. And I got promoted a couple times. I did a brief stint as an inventory buyer, which was my personal hell to be a purchasing agent. Um, it's a lot of reports and no people, which was not a good fit for Holly. And my boss offered me a position as a project analyst. And this is kind of where I hit my stride. And in that time, we were transitioning from 
a mainframe, this is going to really date me, a mainframe system where it was just green screens and keyboards to an ERP, which is an enterprise resource program. So a much more robust computer system. And he needed someone to write all the technical manuals for the department to get to really learn it, to do some sort of baby coding and um, develop a curriculum and train everyone in three offices. And so he just took a chance on me and it was a great fit. Like I found out that I love to teach. I found out that I was really good at um, understanding and being empathetic and understanding what people needed to be able to do their work. And I also served as an internal auditor for ISO 9000, which is just like, if you've heard of Six Sigma or anything like that, um, it is something that a company will get a certification that says, you know, our services meet a, a certain standard. And in that process, I got exposed to contextual inquiry. So I would be asked to go to different departments, observe people on their work environment, and the output looked different than it would for a UX report. But I was literally there to observe them doing their jobs and to see what kind of workarounds did they have? Did, were they actually following the instructions that was written? not to get them in trouble, but in the interest of process improvement. And so, so much of UX is about process improvement and how we can make things iterate to make things better, kind of set me on that path. And then from there, I transferred um, in 2008, we had the big market crash and I got laid off after a little over a 10 year career and I, moved into academia because I wanted to finish my bachelor's degree. And I knew if I walked, worked at WashU, they would help pay for it. So I started in a pretty straight up um, admin role and then just kept expanding it until by the time I left at 10 years, my job description was five pages long. And so I took care of all the student surveys. I did thousands of ad hoc interviews with prospective students. So I was the person that if you walked in and you were like, I think I wanna go to school, maybe. Then you came and saw me and I would say, well, when you flip around on the TV or you open the paper, what kind of things interest you? You know, So I would be doing these informal interviews, trying to get to know people and to understand what their interests were and then how that could maybe align with some of the programs or if it didn't, like I'm all about transparency. If I felt like, or I would tell them, you know what, go to the community college, get some credits under your belt for cheap, for a good price, apply for the transfer scholarship and then come here for free. So go do that. I don't think they probably wanted me to advertise that but I did it anyway because I felt like it was the right thing to do, you know? Um, and so I did a lot of, uh, I worked in the advising and student services department, but I was also working with CRMs and doing heuristic analysis on the websites and 
I was doing all of these UX things. I just didn't know that they had names. <laughs> I, you know, it's like they would give say, Holly, can you look at the website? And so I would go through and look for different kinds of errors and usability and that kind of stuff. But I didn't know that was called a heuristic analysis until I did the launch code program. And a friend of mine had gone through launch code and I had seen him advance really quickly in his career and be very successful. And I thought, well, maybe I could do that. And I didn't really know what UX was when I signed up for it. And it just happened to be like a perfect fit. When I started classes, I was like, wait, I already do all this stuff. We just don't have a name for it. I've been doing this for forever. We just called it something else or that just, because UX is still in many ways an emerging field, it started with human computer interaction, but like there's not a lot of degrees available and those sorts of things. I got my interest in accessibility started when I was working at the university with students and I'm also a person who has disabilities. So I have a personal stake in it. Um, and uh, so that was kind of how things got rolling. And when I graduated from Launch Code, I had already been, I was recruited to a startup before I finished. So I was very fortunate because I had some experience under my belt already, just not under the right title, um, that I was already in a job before I even finished my program. So that was pretty awesome. And I've been doing long-term contract work since, and I love it, love it, absolutely love it. I cannot recommend like my, um, my disability was my reason for leaving the university because I had a really just kind of gut-wrenching discrimination experience around my dis disability. And for my own mental health, I decided it was time for me to go, that it was not, a, that I wasn't, there was way too many of them and not enough of me that I was gonna win. And it, it turned out to be the best change in the trajectory of my career. Like I had no idea that what felt like my world was falling apart at the time would transform into a passion and that I would double my income in a matter of a couple of years and that I would have a career that I felt really satisfied with. You know, I had no idea and that I could then be an advocate for other people with disabilities. I didn't know that was a job. Like I had a very limited scope around those things. It's a very long answer. Oh, it's no worries. It was truly an, an inspiring story, especially for someone who didn't go the traditional route that people typically go and a lot of people don't get a chance to share that. So it was very nice hearing your experiences and that it ended up working out successfully for you. So I know you kind of answered this a little bit, but what was it specifically about UX design and research that sparked your interest? Well, like I said, I wasn't 100% sure what I was getting into when I signed up for the class. I didn't really know 
the description was a little light on details. So I wasn't really sure if I was going to be learning to code or I have my undergrad degrees in psychology and my master's is in nonprofit management. And there was some mention of psychology in the description. So I was like, of the courses they're offering, this is probably the best fit. And it just happened to work out that there was so much over overlap in what I had already been doing and had been doing for years, you know, like with interviewing and all of those things. Like I didn't know, I called it ox. I didn't even know how to say it right. The first day I showed up, I was like, where's the ox class? And then my friend who went through the class before me is like, just own it. Just start saying it all the time until everybody else says it. <laughs> but, um, I didn't even really know what, a, what, like, it was kind of dumb luck, you know, that I landed in the right place. And I think I have about four whole tweets saved on my phone. I have 5,000 bookmarks, but I have like four tweets because the UX is terrible and I can never remember how to save a tweet. But one of them says something about sometimes the door you were knocking on had nothing but stress on the other side. And so it's a blessing that it didn't open. And I had been following, trying to figure out how to carve out an academic research path and just kept hitting one brick wall after another. I knew I had a passion for research, but I just couldn't figure out how to get there. And after it took me 15, 17 years to do a bachelor's and a master's, I was like, I don't know if I want to go to school anymore, like for a PhD. That's a really long, like, that's a long time. And I'll, not all of them will pay for you to go to, like, how am I going to feed my kid? And, you know, there was just a lot of hurdles. And so it was really, um, I had been knocking on a door that was not going to serve me for a long time. And so even though that discrimination situation was horrible, uh, I really learned to be a little bit, a lot more comfortable with taking a little bit of risk and making a leap where before I was, I had a lot of instability growing up. And so it was always about like stability, stability, stability to the point where it became detrimental to me, where I was unwilling to take any risk at all because when's the other shoe going to drop, you know? And so I kind of, it was more like a, my therapist always says, when, when the universe wants something, it will knock. And if you don't listen, it starts pounding. And if you keep not listening, it will just blow the damn door down. And so I was definitely on the blow the damn door down plan, like not even scanning my environment for other options or opportunities. I just could, it was like I had blinders on all the time. I just, and I was just kind of beat down and didn't have a lot of confidence in myself that I could do more. Mm -hmm. Like I knew I was smart, but I just didn't know how I could use that usefully somewhere else. Yeah, I see. Like you were trying to figure out how you could apply it. Um, piggy, piggyback to some of the obstacles you mentioned, um, 
for someone just starting off, I guess, in their career, trying to make that move into UX uh, and design and research, what what are some of the typical obstacles you see that that may interfere or prevent someone having that access into the field? I think that uh, not having a network can be a huge obstacle. The UX community, even broadly, you know, like Stephanie and I know each other through Twitter because of the UX community. Even on Twitter, the UX community is not that big. And so finding a way to tap into that community. So I always taught my students and they can testify that I was like, use Twitter as a way to learn and to create a community, be intentional. Like it's not, it can be a dumpster fire. Like if you just randomly add whoever but go and look for people who are the thought leaders who are talking, who are people who are talking about things that are, you're interested in and have conversations with them. That's how Stephanie and I started talking. That's how other people that I've become friends with where I have real relationships with these people. And out of those, if you're sincere in, in that, you know, people can, they can whiff insincerity. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a networking event or a party or at the office, but if you're really sincerely interested in other people and what they're talking about and you're engaging with them, it just starts to really naturally evolve. And then looking for professional groups, most of them are not, uh, don't have any barriers to participation. And I think in my mind, I thought I had to be professional whatever already to participate in those groups. And that typically isn't true. And a lot of times there are like even mentoring tracks along the way where they're hoping new people come along so they can get them into the fold. And I think the thing that's great about the UX community is that the people who aren't that way, I am always like, they're the interlopers. Like, I don't know why they're here because the UX community is really about community yeah. and helping each other. And mentorship is such an integral part of how we work. And we're so collaborative that those things that you are imagining or barriers are mostly imagined. And if people have an opportunity to get to know you, they'll take a chance on you if you don't check all the boxes. And especially for women, I think, you know, there's these statistics that when men apply for jobs, they, if they meet half of the criteria, they'll apply. Where women yeah. feel like they yeah. have to be able to check every box, right? And so I have found, I was like, well, I guess I'm just gonna grow some big giant boobs and start applying for things that I feel like are over my head. And the truth is that most managers have a, you know, would like to have and a must have, but they don't reveal that in the job description. So if you can check half of it, go ahead and apply. And also I think talking to someone who's in the field, you know, if you get engaged in those networks, they can help you look at what are your transferable skills? Because I think sometimes we get like, we're not able to see those connections where somebody who can be objective is like, oh, well, you did event planning. 
okay, well, facilitating workshops is just a mini event. Like you're gonna be using all those same skills that you used in event planning for workshop planning. So maybe you need to polish your public speaking skills if you're gonna be running the workshop, but you're already like 50% of the way there. And there's people who need to do the ops work or if you're you know, a fine arts person, but you don't have a software background, the software is the easiest stuff to learn. Like there are 5 million YouTube tutorials. Like you don't need to pay for a class. And there's always somebody who's willing to help you. And dear God, don't get attached to anything because your job will change your tool at the drop of a hat. They're like, we're not using that vendor anymore. I can't like it happened. It just happened to me last week. We're getting rid of one tool and we're getting another one. Like, so don't feel like you need to be an expert. If you can use one wireframing tool, you can figure out the rest of them. It's just knowing where, it's just a matter of, they all essentially do the same stuff. Yep. You know, once you have those basic concepts down, it just becomes a function of like, where is it in the toolbar or in the set of tools? So if you can get just that basic mastery, you can teach yourself how to use another set of software that does the same thing in a weekend easily. Maybe less. And it, uh, okay. What's that? Maybe even less, less than a weekend. It's like all kind of the same, I feel like. like yeah, like I, we used Figma for this last cohort. I've never touched Figma before. I did zero tutorials and I was, and I'm not even a full-time designer. Like I make wireframes occasionally and I was able to figure it out without, I think I had to look up like one thing cause I got sick of looking for where it was hiding, yes. you know? So if you have, it's kind of like the difference between using Word and Google Docs, they all pretty much do the same stuff. You know, there's just lots of vendors that do those different things. So I think a lot of our challenges are in our head, they're not real. Yes, for sure. And it, so, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Oh uh, yeah, I wanted just to add because like I know some of the people who join us, they're recent graduates. And I know as a, somebody who's been there <laughs> kind of recently, uh, a lot of things that uh, employers put in the job description, they just like scare you, but it's just like, it's all in your head, basically. Like all these tools you can learn, they're all very similar. And um, also another thing I wanted to add about um, Twitter and just like building the community. I think um, as Holly mentioned, um, UX community is pretty tight. And just um, what I've noticed like by communicating on Twitter, like connecting to people, like people in tech, they're very nice and you can literally, not obviously not everyone but you can like just ping somebody and like message on twitter and they'll be very happy to help you and there's also another thing i recently discovered it's called adp list i think i don't know if you've heard it mm -hmm. but, um i just did i signed up to be a mentor and to get a mentor yeah so mm -hmm. it's totally free mm -hmm. so you can find your mentor in like any field in I think in like in STEM, science, technology, um, just like um, even career, or I think there are some mentors who can help you with portfolio review and 
stuff like that or i don't know about life coaching but uh definitely check it out i think that's a great tool there's also another um thing that's new that's called lunch club and mm. so it's a way to connect with people um and it's just basically random connecting with strangers who have similar interests and so I've just refined it to people who are in the UX, um, UX and adjacent fields. And I've had several meetings with people. Um, I just met with somebody who was originally from the UK living in, uh, living in um, Toronto. Mm. I've got a meeting coming up with someone who's living in Switzerland, who's a design lead because one of my professional goals for myself this year is to better understand senior leadership strategy. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there are often people who are willing to help if you just ask. I think that's probably the hardest part is the willingness to be vulnerable and to ask. But most people are really happy to help Mm -hmm. and if someone says that they can't, it probably has nothing to do with you. They just have a lot on their plate or maybe they just have a lot going on at work. It's not, I don't like you as a human. And so it's okay. I had, and I started getting really bold. And for me, like we had, when I was at Edward Jones, we had someone who's a bit of a circuit speaker. He's a VP of a huge corporation. And I just sent him a message on Twitter and told him how much I enjoyed the talk afterwards. And he offered to have a half an hour coaching session with me by phone for no, like I asked for nothing and he just offered it and he gave me fantastic advice. And he said, whatever your target is, look for other people on LinkedIn who do that and then request informational interviews. And that's something that I never would have thought of on my own. And it was such great advice. And I was like, that's amazing. I mean, I don't have any good ideas that are original. I have stolen all of them or borrowed them from someone. But I think that our community and lots of professional communities that being getting in the middle of the boat is how to be successful, to be as willing to give as you are to receive. You know, it's got to be that two-way channel. You know, if you are, there's always going to be somebody who's newer than you. So don't ever feel like I'm too new to add value. And I have, I have someone on my team who just graduated from our intern program who's taught me how to do things before. And I'm much more senior than her, but who cares? Like she's smart and she's scrappy and she's got good ideas. Why wouldn't I take her up on it? You know, and I will return the favor whenever possible. Like I think being open to not saying, oh, well, I only want to talk to somebody who has this kind of title. Like don't limit yourself. You never know who's going to have that little gem for you that, um, you know, it could be a fellow student that you were just in school with. It could be, it could be a mentor, but it could be a peer. It could be someone who is just starting 
who came up with, there was, we had a guest speaker last cohort who had like the best idea ever for collecting the artifacts while she was making her portfolio. As she created them, she dropped them into Google Slides and in the speaker notes just made quick little diary notes about what she did. So by the time class was over, she had these like tiles she could rearrange and putting her portfolio together was a snap. She already had everything ready to roll. And I was like, that is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I totally stole it from her and now I do it for myself. You know, so I think being open to that and exploring and right now the one upside, not that there's a lot of them to the pandemic other than working from home for me um, is that you know, I've been to meetups in Johannesburg, South Africa, Belgium, all over the world. I was in one yesterday in Australia, Brisbane, I think. Like, take advantage of it while you can, because it's not going to always be wide open, yeah. but it is now. So I mean, go eat. Now. <laughs> yeah, go eat it up. Go get some free learning and make connections with those people and that authenticity is like really all the only requirement it's kind of like when i tell people when you're learning how to design you only need to draw as good as a kindergartner like basic shapes are the only mastery that's required you just need to be able to convey a simple idea and don't get attached to it because you're probably going to crumple it up and throw it away anyway and do 10 more so it doesn't need this is not fine art it's squares rectangles triangles circles lines that's stick people storyboarding we don't need portraits like that's i think sometimes we're just really hard on ourselves i think a lot of our challenges are much more in our head than they are in reality and people really want to help Mm -hmm. so my experience I agree for sure. Like, it's just, you got to go and ask. (laughs) I think people are willing to help. And yeah, that's all in your head. (laughs) That's the important thing. Um, But um, I kind of wanted to go back into what our initial focus was. And we really wanted to cover the importance of, uh, of accessibility and what it means to you exactly, Holly. And why is it important? Why, why do we have to pay attention to this and like why just like tell us your insight about this topic please well I already gave you my warning that this is weepy week so it's been said um just some quick statistics 25 percent of humans have a disability most of them are unseen you know people have this mental model that if you're disabled that you have some kind of mobility device or that it's going to be really obvious in some way and that is far less common i mean it it can be the case but and often people have more than one disability i don't like to make lists of mine because they're ridiculous and long you know like i have quite a few different Um, I now have two neurologists, let's put it that way. So, and that's not the end of my disabilities. That's just managing that piece of my disability pie requires two neurologists. And so 
um, 98.2% of home pages are inaccessible to disabled users, mm. but 25% of humans have disabilities. That's not okay. You know, like not okay at all. And these are not old stats. And people, when they learn to code are not taught to code in a way that is accessible. And the only way that that's gonna change is if we evangelize what's not taught and push for that to be the standard instead of the exception. As a person with disabilities, it's really, it really sucks to get left on the sidelines on a regular basis. You know, for something simple, I have, I took medication before this talk so that I wasn't wobbly, but I have a neurological condition that causes tremors that are significant. And I have a consult next week with my neurologist to talk about brain surgery to get them under control because they have escalated to the point that they are interfering with nearly every aspect of my life. Like I can't, sometimes washing my hair is difficult or brushing my hair or using a mouse or, you know, I can't tell you how many times I get locked out of accounts if they have password masking. If I can't see what I'm typing, like, who the hell knows what, I mean, and doesn't everybody want to see their password when they're typing it anyway? Like there's all these constraints that we put on users that don't have to be there and that create so many challenges. And I don't think that, and I think that a lot of times until someone hears a personal story, it doesn't seem real. There is this persistent belief that people with dis disabilities are edge cases that they're the outliers, that they're not a significant portion of the user population. Therefore, that's something we can do. We can do something about that later. And I've heard people say it, so I know I'm not making it up. Um, and just as much as physical space should be accessible to anyone who has a disability, we are so dependent on digital space that it is escalated to being a human rights issue. You know, if you are a person with disabilities and you're unable to use a computer, how do you sign up to get a COVID shot? Mm -hmm. Like that's a pain in the ass for somebody without disabilities and good Wi-Fi. you know, like with a good internet connection. If you're somebody who doesn't have those skills or have that access, <coughs> or can't make use of it because you're your disability, it's literally putting your life at risk. I haven't gotten a single piece of mail about how to register for a COVID shot. Has anyone else? I mean, I literally have no idea how you're supposed to do some of those things. And so I think it's super, super important that we talk about it and talk about it often and don't let people forget that it's not somebody over there. It's your neighbor, it's your sister, it's your cousin, it's your coworker. And that we bring those conversations into the workspace. Disabled is not a curse word. It's not a bad word. Me saying that I'm a person, I'm a disabled person is not a, a judgment on my character. It's like saying I have brown hair, you know? It's just part of who I am or saying that I'm 
I'm white, you know, it's just, it's one of the many pieces that makes up who I am as a person, but there are things that are really important that make this, make um, digital space inaccessible for a lot of people with many different conditions, not just, and like minimal changes can have widespread ripple effects. There, I love this quote by Steve Krug where he talks about, he's the author of Don't Make Me Think, which is a fantastic UX book if you don't have it, where, which is all about reducing cognitive load and preventing error and like, let's just design shit right to begin with instead of making users have to figure stuff out, you know? But he's like, how awesome is it that by me just doing my job a tiny bit better, I can make the world better for other people. Like I'm already doing my job. If I just put in like a little bit more effort, I can make countless lives better. And that's not an understatement. That is the real truth. If you think about, like, if you took all of the elevators out of tall buildings, what would happen to people who were disabled? And that's kind of how the internet is for disabled users right now. It's like being in tall buildings with no elevators. You know, the things that we have to do to work around what is inaccessible either means we can't participate or that, um, and I am often surprised by how few people are even aware of accessibility. It's just not talked about and it's not taboo. It's like, like talking about learning your body parts, vagina, elbow, they're both parts. It doesn't have to be weird unless you make it weird. You know, it doesn't have to be an uncomfortable conversation unless you insist on it being an uncomfortable conversation. And most people with disabilities are perfectly happy to talk about what's hard for them. If you're like, hey, you know, what, is it okay if I ask you a question? Um, but also like, of course, do your due diligence. Don't make all disabled people do the work that you could do yourself. There's a lot out there that's already documented. It's kind of like asking a black person to tell you all of the ways that their life is a struggle without ever having read an article written by a black author. You know, like do your due diligence first. But if you still have questions, it's okay to ask somebody and if they don't have the emotional resources, it's also okay for them to say, I don't have it in me today, but maybe we can talk about it tomorrow. Or maybe you can talk to somebody else. Here's somebody else. Maybe you can talk to her. Here's a resource. Like I try to be kind about it because I do think that it's in, important. And I also think it's important for us to hold each other accountable. I used a word today in a tweet that I did not know was an ableist slur in other countries because it's not here, at least in my understanding of it. And a Twitter friend messaged me and was like, hey, can I tell you something? I'm like, yeah, of course. 
And they're like, that word is actually the equivalent of the R word where I'm from. And I was like, oh, like delete, you know, immediately delete and retweet. And I think, and I, and I owned it. I was like, hey, I use this word and thank you to my friend for telling me that I did that. Because how do you know what you don't know, right? Like everybody has to start somewhere. So I try really hard to practice calling in, not calling out. Calling out is very divisive and not helpful. But if you call people in and you're like, you know, I know you probably didn't know, but that's actually very hurtful to say something like that, or that's offensive. Um, I think we could make a lot of gains that way because it leaves space to have a conversation versus attack and being like, you're an ableist POS. I can't believe you said that. You know, that's not like most people just don't know. Yeah, I agree. Did I answer your question? <laughs> oh, you definitely did. I'm still trying to take it in. You definitely provided a lot of insight, a lot of stuff that I didn't know and definitely um, opened people's eyes to the issue that people don't necessarily um, recognize. So in the book, 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, you contributed a chapter. Can you tell us a little bit about your contribution to the book? Yeah, so the book is broadly written for people in UX. And so UX practitioners are weighing in on all sorts of topics. My chapter specifically talks about that, um, you know, accessibility is everybody's responsibility. Just like uh, being inclusive and not being tolerate, tolerating of homophobic or racism or, or racist or uh, ethnic slurs or like, that's not okay. Nobody's off the hook on that. And it's the same thing for accessibility. It's everybody's responsibility to be watching for it. It doesn't matter where, if you're coding, if you're designing, if you have an accessibility expert on your team, you still have a responsibility to know something about that. Do you have to be an expert? No, but keep that conversation alive. You know, when I'm doing research, I'm very intentional when I have the opportunity to know some key demographics about people to make sure that I'm including people of color and that I'm including people of different ages and different um, different uh, income brackets so that it's not a collection of one sort of person, right? So that we get a good cross section and um, a, re a true sample of the population because the true sample of the population is highly varied and all of those voices matter. And so my chapter is a call to action. It's also some reflection like some questions to ask yourself, am I doing what I can, could be doing at work today to be inclusive? You know, am I thinking about things like when I'm designing, am I thinking about people who may have experiences that are different than mine, whether it's cultural 
in my case, I'm talking specifically about accessibility, but really you could sub in any other minority group and it would work the same. And so it's that. And then the second half of the chapter is some things that you can do to get engaged with the community. Read articles and books written from the perspective of someone who is disabled. Don't just read about people who talk about disabled people. Learn from, you know, just like I'm very intentional about reading literature that is written by people of color and from cultures that are not my own, because that helps me be, I think, just generally a better human, but it also makes me better at my job so that I can be more inclusive. I'm thinking much more broadly. And so what are some, so I give some suggestions for ways to explore how can you dig deeper and further understand there's plenty of resources and information available publicly that you don't have to go tackle a person with a disability to find out what that might be like. There's plenty of, there's blogs, there's videos, there's documentaries, there's articles, there's people like me on Twitter who talk about their disabilities and are very transparent. And hi, Mike, by the way, thank you for retweeting today. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, there's lots of people who are, and Stephanie is an accessibility uh, professional. You know, there are people that are like, you can get engaged with who want to talk about those things. And all you have, it's there for the asking. You just have to make yourself available to it. And so that's really what my, my focus was, is that doesn't matter if you have a whole accessibility team, you're not off the hook. It's your job too. And it's not just your job when you're at work. It's your, just as much as me not tolerating racism at work is still my job when I'm not at work. That's my duty as a human is to not tolerate that and to take action, um, take whatever action I can to course correct when I encounter it and to make people of color feel safe or my friends who are queer feel safe, um, you know, whatever it is, because we need an inclusive, we are better together, period, end of story. Like we just are. I agree that like having it as a social responsibility, it's just, it makes society as a whole better because as you said, we're stronger, we're more powerful, more ideas. And you have that connection to really focus on different obstacles you might've not known there were that were there. And circling back to that, we know that people with disabilities face a lot of barriers when they're, you know, trying just, as you mentioned, like just throughout life, you know, elevators, technology, it's everywhere. What do you think is our next big focus in tech that should be um, observed more in, in order to help increase accessibility? I think we need to work really hard to fix what's broken already. Mm -hmm. You know, 98.2% of home site, home pages are not accessible we have some, some big work to do with what's already here. I do think that AI is our next opportunity to really make a big difference in the lives of people 
with disabilities. I know for me, my tremors are like nuclear. When I wake up in the morning, my husband calls them my zombie arms because like, I mean to reach for the alarm clock, but what clock, but what actually happens is I just like knock shit off my nightstand and I've almost completely, I've cracked the back of my iPhone because instead of grabbing it, I tossed it, right? So I got an Alexa alarm clock so that I can talk to it instead of having to actually use something because they're just, for whatever reason, when I first wake up, that's the worst that they're gonna be all day. It's like, I guess my brain's just not like, all the switches aren't flipped on yet or something. Um, and so I think that there is a real opportunity, but there is also a lot of inherent racism and bias in AI as it is right now. I think about, I can't use Siri half the time because it's calibrated to male voices, white male voices, or white British, or British English male voices, or what Siri prefers in other devices, because the people who test them are men. And so if I want Siri to understand me, I have to pretend to be a British man or not use it and even then it's iffy you know so if we can make improvements in those areas what if we had something like a Roomba that was the tray say you're a disabled user and your medicines on that tray and you could just call it to you to bring your medicine or whatever you need but right now Siri thinks I'm obsessed with ducks and we've been together for years. I am not obsessed <laughs> with ducks. And I think how many times do I have to say F-U-C-K for Siri to figure out that's not what I mean. Apparently 10 million is not enough, you know, but, it, and now I just say what the duck because that's what she's gonna type anyway. Um, <laughs> and it's more socially acceptable. But I think there is real opportunity to leverage AI to be truly assistive technology in the healthcare space for people in their homes at work. And to, you know, it takes years to get a service dog. You know, what if you could have something that could do some of the things that a service dog does for you that was AI powered? Well, that's great, except right now, what, if you have an accent and you're not a dude, good luck. You know, it's just not where it needs to be yet. But I think that it's, I see more and more meetups constantly. Like it's definitely there's a lot of effort being put there, but there's still a long way to go. But I still think we have a lot of fixing what's broken that needs to be done. We need to evangelize accessible code, semantic HTML, headings. There, you don't get to have five H1s, headings go in order. I did a quick accessibility check on somebody's page the other day and they had H1, H2, H4 and I was like where's H3 like so when I tried to tab through it it just skipped over a whole section of the web page 
why i don't know i was like would you write an outline without a number three like i don't even under like couldn't even follow the logic but i see that stuff all the time if you open your code inspector it's very revealing how much bad code is out there and i'm like it's kind of hard to blame the coder when they you have to be so intentional and really be a go-getter to find out how to code accessibly. It's yep. just very unusual for people to be taught how to code accessibly in a program. It's like rare and it should be the standard. I agree with that one. And also I think you mentioned about COVID chats. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's not about coding, but it's just simple logic. Like I, my aunt, she's 78 and she does not know how to use a computer. And that was the only way to register her for COVID chat. So I, I had to help her in, even I was kind of struggling just to find out more info and like how to get her registered. And then, so her friends and like our neighbors, I had to also register them because there's no way they can do it without um, us, I'd say, who are actually um, more, more experienced with computers. So I think we definitely have an issue there. And it's not only like um, they don't have this, they just, I don't know, just like we're lacking this knowledge and uh, just people don't design things for somebody who's, who, who's less experienced than we are, for example. So... I think that's a big yeah, issue. there's a big technology gap, even with the program that I taught in the, you know, entrance exam did not, isn't really a good assessment of computer literacy. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, there were people in the class who were, it wasn't their fault, but they just weren't prepared. They didn't have the literacy that they needed to be successful in the class, like to learn all this new stuff and also learn how to be more than just an email computer user, you know? And for a lot of folks, that's all they know how to do because that's all they need to do. You know, if, unless you have an interest in it mm -hmm. and, or it's part of your job. And there's a lot of people who do very important jobs that have nothing to do with computers, like, I have a good friend who is a commercial plumber. I am very glad that she takes care of all of our plumbing needs because I find them to be important, right? Like, I'm really glad that this is something that she does. I like having toilets at work and water to wash my hands, but that's not a job that you have a computer. So how computer literate she is, is gonna be dependent on her level of interest. It's not something that she needs to learn necessarily. And there's a lot of people in that boat who yeah. add a lot of value to our community, but don't necessarily have that need. But we have grown so much more dependent on computers. And <clears throat> the COVID thing is like the most upsetting example to me because it leaves some of our lowest income, most vulnerable citizens in the dust literally they have for people who know how who are super users trying to get signed up for a covid shot is like doing some sort of 
interpretive dance move, you know, like you got to visit this site. I mean, I signed up for a ton of things and not a single person emailed me. I got my shot because somebody forwarded me an email that said, don't forward it. And I was like, I'm going to give it a try anyway, you know, and I just got lucky that it worked. I put all my real info in there. I was like, if they don't want me to come, they can cancel it. But I, you know, like I don't, both my husband and I are high risk, but nobody was reaching out to me to say, I got no phone calls, nothing in the mail. So if you are a person who is disabled, you're low income, you would need someone to help you travel to go get a shot. How the hell is that supposed to happen? How do you even know unless, like, what are you supposed to watch the news and hope you can scribble down a phone number fast enough? Like, you know, mobile vaccination is probably the only way that's going to get done. Where it's like literally block to block with volunteers, like let's round up the food trucks, the ice cream trucks, ring that bell, but not with the racist song. And let's, let's go knock on some doors and help some folks out. Because it is now COVID, having a COVID shot has become a privilege. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Not everyone realizes it. <laughs> um, no. I, yeah. We actually a little bit short on time, but we wanted to uh, open the floor for the other listeners. Um, and they had a chance to ask you some questions. And I'm going to read the first one. Uh, it is from Mike Gellers. And he, uh, oh. yeah. He is asking, is it better or okay to say differently abled versus disabled? I think the best thing to do, great question, Mike. And I think the best thing to do is I prefer disabled, but you can just always ask someone, like, what would you, how would you like, how, you know, what's your, what's your preference? Just kind of the same way you would ask someone like, do you prefer Michael or Mike? Or do you, um, what are your, you know, would you, would you like to share your pronouns with me? I was in a meetup recently and somebody said differently abled, which makes me roll my eyes. I'm like, it's just, I'm just disabled. It's just who part of who I am. It's nothing that we need to like put a cute spin on. It just is what it is. Um, but then somebody else who was disabled was like, that's what I prefer. And then there was a movement for a long time about person first language, but then that there's this idea that that kind of separates the disability from the person and you, you can't, it's like saying Elena's not Mexican, you know, like that's just part of who she is or uh, you know, you're not from Uzbekistan. That's just who part of who you are. And so you wouldn't say I identify as, right? Like I identify as someone from Uzbekistan. Like that would be kind of a strange approach. Yeah. Um, but I think it really just comes down to what people feel comfortable with. And so asking is always a nice, polite thing to do. Just what's your preference? Yeah, it's all about wording. Um, and actually, we have another question from Amanda. 
and she is asking uh, are there any accessibility resources that you recommend that are written by people with disabilities um there is i actually just got this book and alice wong is the author and she's super active on twitter you will never run out of things to read from alice wong and the name of the book is disability which way i always get i can't mirror this is why i can't take dance classes or group exercise classes <laughs> i crash in everybody um disability this visibility and it's all PO, first person stories from people with disabilities and there's lots of blogs and things too but this book has um has gotten a lot of positive press. Alice Wong herself is disabled and is very active on Twitter. I would say she is a disability activist. And so this, I just got this. And on the front, it says these essays are the heart, the bones and the blood of disability rights. So I think that one's a winner. I'll loan it to you. Yay, and I think, yeah, we can post after the event, like all the resources that we talked about and uh, the book you mentioned. Um, we have, I think we have another question uh, from Yulanjali. I hope I pronounced it right, uh, but um, they say, uh, it would be great if you can suggest type of tests that we can use specifically for, um, to understand accessibility while user testing. So um, you have the WCAG, which is the worst acronym ever, W-C-A-G. And I believe the website is w3.org, like number3.org, if somebody wants to road, that test, road test that for me. Um, yes, thank you, Mike. So they're the web content it's accessibility guidelines. There's a bunch of checklists. I mean, it is a, and Stephanie probably has some good recommendations as well. And she also has a fantastic blog where she shares a lot of different articles about accessibility and how you can make your website. Stephanie, can you toss your blog on there? She has an ally toolkit blog that's really yeah. great. Yeah, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about that, Stephanie? Well, I started my uh, journey into accessibility about two years ago. Um, I never really uh, heard about accessibility before I moved to the U.S., which is kind of incredible. And uh, I started to gather a lot of articles, and uh, I decided I have to do something about it. And... I start uh, to share them on a on a blog called uh, allytoolbox.com. So that's just uh, I'm gonna. So it's just sharing some resources about uh, accessibility. Most of them are maybe more more about design because uh, I'm a designer. I was uh, an uh, an art director consultant when I lived in France. So. It's still uh, where I am the most uh, comfortable to speak about. 
Yeah, and Stephanie has a wonderful, wonderful website. Another friend of mine, um, Nick Steenhout, which I'll I'll give you the name so you can spell it out. What is it? I think it's ablish.com. Oh, ableist.com? Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure. His name is... I'm not um, sure. It's Nick, N-I-C, Steenhout, H-O-U-T, uh, and he's Vavroom, V-A-V-R-O-O-M on Twitter, uh, and I think that's because he's got a wheelchair and he likes to go fast, um, so Vavroom. It's uh, the sound in French of Vavroom. Oh, okay, yeah, he's also a native French speaker. Um, yeah even though he's Belgian, which is very confusing, but uh, he just moved around a lot. But so there are some really fantastic accessibility experts and accessibility advocates who are themselves, themselves have disabilities and also write about it. And then I saw Mike dropped in their web aim, which is another really fantastic resource. The only thing that I think is challenging about um, WCAG and WebAIM is that they are very technical and text heavy, so they can feel a little overwhelming. And the nice thing about things like Stephanie's website and Nick's website is that they're written more article style. And so it's just a little easier to read, but there is someone who's written an article about nearly everything and then you can go look at some of the there's like you can do a heuristic analysis using the guidelines from the nielsen norman group you can also do a heuristic accessibility checklist you know an analysis i'm like words are hard today um you can do that as well and they have some good checklists it's not there's also some plugins for your browser there's wave and axe which is not perfect, but it's at least gonna get you set on the right path. There's a lot of things that are really common, like contrast errors or font sizes being absurdly small. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones, you know, semantic headings, like the missing an H something, or just not having one. I saw a page the other day that had no H1, just didn't have one. Um, and that means that a screen reader isn't going to work. So, because all those things are landmarks. Oh, hi, Elena, you have your hand up. That's so cute. I forgot that it did that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I don't want to drag on the uh, differently abled and uh, disabled uh, comment any further, but I more recently have become a diversity advisor for my department, yay. And um, one of the things we were tasked with is to come up with a climate survey uh, for our department. And there, um, my boss put language in there regarding disability. And I, I, you know, I had to pause for a minute and say like, I don't think we're using that word, I'm not sure. And so do you recommend, I know you mentioned like you can ask somebody what they prefer, but in the case of administering a survey to folks, like, do you think it would be okay to use both in a survey when you're, especially when you're taking a climate survey, approaching folks with, you know, are, are these your experiences? 
I think if you look at most surveys where you're asking people if they want to disclose, it'll say something along the lines of, you know, um, are you, do you have disabilities? You know, it's pretty straight up language. I would say, look and see what is kind of standard. The government, a lot of times, if you look at um, what's, Stephanie, in Canada, is it 8F.gov? What's the Canadian one? Quebecois, the French one? The English Canadian version for the, the web standards, is it 8F, is that right? I think so, yes. Yeah, so the government is usually pretty good with their language around those things. Um, surprisingly, they're often better than a lot of other places. Like usability.gov is our US version and they have some pretty good, just plain guidelines you know, for those sorts of things. But typically I just see something along the lines of like, you know, are you willing to like optional dis disability disclosure, something like that. It's some, I think there are more people that say, you know, I'm a person who has disabilities or I'm disabled than someone who would say differently abled. I think those are not unheard of, but it's said less frequently. You're not gonna. I think we ended up using both <laughs> just on the same yeah, side. I, it's kind of like you're not gonna make a hundred percent happy all the time. So you do the best that you can. Doing something is better than doing nothing. I think, uh, Holly, you answered all the questions that we had and Everybody who has joined us, they had their questions. And on this note, I think we'll wrap up our Q&A session. Yeah, so thank you so much, like Anna said, for helping us and helping us understand more about what you do and how it's everyone's responsibility to really make sure we're being aware of how we can you know, build a better world and correct the, the issues that are already there to create a more accessible place for everyone. Um, before we leave, I did want to ask what would be the best way for our guests or anybody else to reach you if they have any questions oh, sure. or anything. Yeah, absolutely. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn and my Twitter are the same. Um, I'll type it in the chat. Mm -hmm. I am, so it's the usual, what is it, www.linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash something ridiculous like that, right? It's the usual uh, LinkedIn, but so my Twitter and my LinkedIn are exactly the same. I'm 314, cause that's my area code. And I can't forget that. <laughs> that's a, I have some memory disabilities. So I tend to pick numbers that are familiar to me. Um, yes, exactly. Thank you, Samantha. That is exactly what it would look like. So. It's, it's the same in either place. I was just gonna say thank you so much. Thank you to everyone for hanging in there and you know coming to listen to me yap, yap, yap. Mm -hmm.
Um, I oh, hope I said something job. that was... shared so much. Oh, thank you. I love being able to see Anna's gorgeous face and <laughs> You know, I miss, I miss my babies when I don't, I'm like a mama bear, you know, <laughs> I do. I miss my babies, my Ava and, you know, all, all my kids, doesn't matter if you're way too old to be my kid. I'm, you know, the ultimate mama bear. I really care about my so students. Happy that we, yeah, we're happy that we could connect and keep in touch and like so many familiar faces here as well. So it was nice. <laughs> Yeah, it was beautiful. And I hope that you all will connect with each other as well. You can always mind my Twitter for one another or drop your, your stuff in the chat real quick. But thank you all so much and so much success. I think what you're doing is amazing. And I'm just so honored and grateful to have had the opportunity to be here. Thank you so much, Holly, for sharing your experiences. You know, like you were sometimes, like you, you mentioned it earlier, you got to, some people, sometimes need to hear a story to really resonate with what obstacles and barriers are there are there for them and you know you really gave us an insight me too I struggle with dyslexia so I didn't really know there was like special fonts or stuff like that so mm -hmm. you know sometimes you, just, you don't even know that there's certain things that you can look for and you really shared a lot of resources and a lot of insight so thank you so much yes and please feel free to hit me up and ask me questions anytime Yep. I'm like a ferret. I hoard resources. So, <laughs> pleasure. Yeah. Thank you to everyone who attended tonight. It was a pleasure having all of you. Um, also, I don't know if you all have us on social media platforms, on everything where Her Tech Hustle. If you have any questions, you can hit us up on, at hertechhustle at gmail.com. And we hope you all have a good night. And thank you. Thank you for thank joining you us. And thanks to all my Else. Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody. Mm. Thank okay. you so much. It makes my heart full. Thank you.